Welcome to the Redeemer Lincoln Square podcast. Our church began in April of 2017 and is located just down the street from Lincoln Center in the Lincoln Square neighborhood of Manhattan. Our channel will primarily feature sermons from our Sunday worship service, as well as encouraging stories and conversations with members of our LSQ church family. We hope you'll subscribe as a way to stay connected during this season of uncertainty and social distancing. Today's reading is Jonah, chapter 3, verse 10, through chapter 4, verse 11. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate Lord, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, Is it right for you to be angry? Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head and to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, It would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said, and I am so angry I wish I were dead. But the Lord said, You have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals? Here ends the reading. Thank you, Tiffany. Good morning. Welcome to... Redeemer Lincoln Square again. We started a quick, this is going to be a quick mini-series, just four weeks, we're one week in, and we're looking at a mini-series on individuals in the Bible who are discouraged, who are despondent, who are downcast and in despair. In light of Easter that we just had, we're looking now at individuals who are having a hard time, and we're doing that because often... We get to know who we really are, and we get to know who really God is in moments of despair, in hard times. Last week, we looked at Elijah, who what we see is he's in despair because of his lack of success. Today, what we're going to look at is we're going to look at Jonah, who is in despair because of his success. See, Elijah, when he shows up, he wanted to try to change people, the king, the, the, the Israelites, and they didn't. But Jonah, he actually changed the lives, the people of Nineveh. They turned from their ways, and it puts them in despair. And so since Jonah's despair and Elijah's despair are different, God meets them in different ways, and we need to evaluate that and see that for ourselves. So let's, let's look at today 
how that's different. We're going to do it in three parts. We're going to look at God's critique of our success or our view of success, God's counterintuitive grace, and then God's caring compassion. I'll say it again. We're going to look at, real quickly, we're going to look at God's critique of our success, God's counterintuitive grace towards us, and then God's caring compassion to us as well. So first, God's critique of our success. And let me try to summarize quickly the book of Jonah. It's only four chapters. Here's Jonah. He's called as a prophet to the people of Nineveh, which is the largest city of the Syrian empire. These people were not good people. In fact, I don't think Jonah knew this, but these were the very people who would destroy Israel in 722 BC. So uh, he had right to think these were the bad guys. These were the people who um, should, we should stay as far away as possible from them. Uh, uh, Secular historians point out that the Syrians were uh, um, actually masters of torture. I won't go into all of it, but I did this past week, I did a bunch of research, but it, it, I mean, they used psychological warfare against the civilizations that they would conquer. They, uh, one of the things that they, they loved to do is when they conquered a civilization, they'd make the nobles grind their ancestors' bones into dust. I mean, that's, that's, that messes with your head, particularly if you're a people group that care about lineage, that care about family. Um, there's all kinds of examples that where they perform child sacrifices, they, um, not just of their uh, um, own people, but also of the people they conquered. I won't go into it all, but, but basically, Jonah's like, these are bad people. God calls him to minister to them to try to change their ways, and Jonah runs the other direction. In fact, he felt justified. He, think he, he thought it was a justice issue. He said, you know what? It's right for me to go the other direction. It is not a... It is wrong to go over there and try to change their views. What ends up happening is he gets swallowed by a fish. He has this great prayer of repentance in, in Jonah 2. The fish spits him out. He eventually goes to Nineveh. He starts waving his hands everywhere saying, Stop, beware, watch out, change your ways. And amazingly, they did. Amazingly, they actually changed from, uh, away from their, their evil deeds. And the king issues a proclamation, and what we read here, our first verse, verse 10, is uh, what God says. It says here, when God saw that they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction that he had threatened. If this was a major movie, this would actually be a great place for the movie to end. It's a happy ending, right? The people turn from their ways. Jonah turns from his evil ways, everybody turns from their bad ways, and they all live happily ever after. And Jonah goes down as the most famous prophet ever because he changes people, everybody's opinions. He's so successful. I don't know, do you know anybody else that's gone into a city of 120,000 people and says, hey, you guys should all change, and they do? I mean, imagine if somebody came to New York City, started waving their hands saying, hey, you guys should all change about your practices, and they did. That would be made into a major movie. That's where this should stop. And the fact that it didn't stop actually is telling, isn't it? The fact that it didn't shows us that something more interesting than being swallowed by a fish, something more interesting than people turning from their ways is happening here and is interesting. And it's this first verse. Look at verse 1. It's the first letter, sorry, the first word in the first verse. But, but to Jonah, this seemed very wrong. 
And it says, he became angry. It's actually not the little, that's not literally what, what the Hebrew says. The Hebrew says, he became anger. And it's, it's actually even stronger. He wasn't just angry, he was anger. That's how mad he is. But, and he's so mad, it says here, Jonah doesn't see the point of living anymore. He's so disheartened, he's so upset, he's like, I'm done. Why? Last week we said, Elijah didn't get success and it brought him despair. This week, Jonah does get success, but when it's not what he expected, when it doesn't give him what he thought he needed and wanted, it fall, he fell into despair. I think most of us believe the equation is very simple, right? Get success, get happiness, get what I want. If I can just get success, I'll get happiness and what I want. And um, <laughs> what nobody tells us is that if you never get success, yeah, sure, you're distraught. But if you do get success, what you thought would make you happy doesn't. And when it doesn't, you end up like Jonah. What does Jonah do? What, what's it, what, what, what is he like? It says angry. I don't know if you know this, but anger in of itself is not a problem. Biblically, anger is, is, uh, is neutral to some degree. God gets angry. Jesus gets angry. So anger is not necessarily the problem. The Bible's, the, the, the real thing that anger does is anger reveals to you something. It's always a response to something that you love. That's why you get angry. So it, it, that when you, not just when something that you love, something that you loved is threatened. So for instance, if you threaten my wife and kids, I'm going to get angry. If we're at a party and there's one brownie left, and I tell everybody that's my brownie, and now that brownie disappears... I'm going to get angry. Why? Because anger is the response to something that you love that's being threatened, whether it's your kids or your brownie. And it's always proportional to what you love that's being under attack. So instead of saying, hey, why is, why is Jonah getting angry here? What you should say is, what is it that he loves that the anger is revealing? And actually, you can apply that to yourself too, Right? If you want to know why you can't get over your anger right now, if you want to know why you can't get over your bitterness, your hurt, you should ask yourself, what is it that I love right now that's being so threatened that's leading to this response? Right? Maybe it's our reputation that people are soiling. Maybe it's our, our identity that we feel threatened. Maybe it's, it's your sense of how you feel like your life should go and it's not going that way. I think many of us get angry because at the end of the day, God's agenda for our life is not necessarily our agenda for our life. I think that's why God, look at verse 4, God says, he replies, is it right for you to be angry? What he's getting at that is, is what is making you angry? Is that right? Because we said anger is not the problem. It's, having, it's when you have disproportionate anger because of a disproportionate love. And so what God is doing here, our first, our first point here is that God is critiquing, potentially, he's critiquing our idea of success, what, what we think we need for success. He's going after Jonah's idea of success and therefore our idea of success. That what I, you know, this, this equation, that what I think is what I need for success will make me happy. But that isn't how it works. Here's somebody, exhibit A, that Jonah gets the success, most successful prophet ever, it doesn't give him what he wants. Doesn't, it doesn't, that success doesn't lead to that happiness. 
You can be the most successful business person, the most successful wife, husband, father, mother, lover, whatever you want. And at the end of the day, it can't bring you what you and I really want. What might that be for you? What haven't you achieved, but somewhere in the back of your mind, you're hoping that you do, because if you get it, then you'll feel like you're successful. And you, that it'll give you what you want. It's usually an, a young person's thing to be optimistic. Some of you maybe have lived long enough, and you got what you thought you needed. And it's not enough. And it's hollow. It turns to ash in our mouth. And now we're saying, what, now what? God is critiquing what we think we need for success, what we think we need. First thing. Now, secondly, he doesn't leave Jonah there, does he? Second thing, look at God's counterintuitive grace. Jonah, by the way, tells us what he thinks is wrong. He thinks what he's going to tell us what he thinks is why he's angry. Look at verse 2. He prayed to the Lord, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That, that is what I tried to for, forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love. In other words, he starts listing the characteristics of God. Which, by the way, he's quoting scripture. He's quoting what everybody knew about the character of God. And he thinks the problem is that God's character, who he is, compassionate, loving, kind. The problem is that he applies his character that should be for only God's people to everybody else. In other words, he's saying, hey, Jonah's basically saying, I'm right, and God, you got it wrong here. And it's not, by the way, you know what modern people do? This is what we do. We say, how can a good God let good people have bad lives? Jonah, he's pre-modern. He's flipped it. He's saying, God, how can you let bad people have good lives? That's what makes him mad. See, he thinks that's the problem, and yet our text actually kind of shows us, pulls pulls us behind the veil and shows us what's really going on. Because more is going on. The writer actually leaves clues. In this prayer, in verse 2, there is no less than nine I or me statements in the Hebrew. What do I mean by that? I'm going to try reading it again so you, maybe you can hear it this time. Jonah says, isn't, it, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is what I tried to forestall. I knew you see here, you hear all the eyes. It's the I, I, me, me, myself. In the Hebrew, it's, it's so much more apparent too. But what it's doing is it's revealing to us what Jonah really loved. Me, myself, and I. And that means Jonah's real anger at the end of the day, he's angry at God's grace because he can't control it to who it gets applied to. He wanted it applied to, I mean, the individualist versions for himself, but he wanted it applied to his people only. That the good people are in and the bad people are out. And God said, no. Uh, true story. When I was in Boston, I, I, was, I was hanging out with a guy. He wasn't a Christian. And over time, he became a Christian. And this guy was a very colorful person. He, um, he had multiple sexual relationships all at the same time. He cursed like a sailor. He had many, many addictions. And yet, when he became a Christian, he was, it was so earth-shattering for him. He actually called up, he actually had a friend that was a Christian. And he called him up and said, I want to tell you something. Isn't it amazing? I'm like that thief on the cross. That today I get to be with Jesus. In my life, this is so amazing. The next day he came back and, and I was talking to him and he was pretty bummed. 
was very, he was all down. Like, what's, why, why are you down? And he says this. He said, his Christian friend told him that he couldn't be a Christian unless he cleaned up his life. That you can't be a Christian unless you're no longer sleeping around, unless you're no longer addicted to things. Because what, and, and, and what his friend was essentially saying is this. You have to be a good person. You have to have a good life before you can be a Christian. And yet that's not Christianity. That's actually not understanding grace. Grace doesn't mean you change and then you get salvation. Christianity is you have salvation and then change happens, but often slowly, unevenly, over time. Because it's not, and this is, this is, this is what's so hard for people to get. The entire world, the way the world works, whether you're religious or not religious, the way your jobs work, the way your relationships work, it's always obey, perform, do, and then you're accepted. Christianity reverses that. It's the only faith that says, no, you're accepted, you're in, it's done. Now, therefore, through gratitude, you can obey. And guess what? If Jonah didn't get that, I guess I, guess I struggle. I wonder... Where do, we not do, where do we not get that? Where do we not understand grace? And I think our text shows us at least two, there's two tests here, two ways to know how you might not get grace. At Redeemer Lincoln Square, we value questions and the people who ask them, which is why we hold a time of question and response, or Q&R, after our Sunday worship service. It's an opportunity for anyone to text in questions and then process responses alongside our pastors and other members of our church community. If you have questions that you'd like to process, feel free to email us at lsq at redeemer.com or join us for our virtual worship service on YouTube every Sunday at 1030 a.m. Eastern. You can find our YouTube channel at lincolnsquare.redeemer.com slash YouTube. Number one, you quit. Look at verse five. Jonah said, God, uh, God, oh, sorry, that was verse nine. Verse five, Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. You know what he did? He quit. He was called to the city. He was called to these people, and he said, you know what, I'm done. I'm out of here. And he leaves. When you become a spectator, the way you know you don't get grace is when you get near broken people. When you get near messed up people, you quit on them. And by the way, no, I'm not talking about, you know, I'm not saying if you're in an abusive relationship or a toxic relationship that you shouldn't get out. I'm not saying that. What I am saying is sometimes we label people abusive or toxic just when they're just difficult people. And we, want to, we, don't, we want to give up and not be with them anymore. That's quitting on them. And I think this shows a lack of introspection that really you're a miracle of grace. And if they're going to actually ever get it, they're going to have to be a miracle of grace. And so you can do this corporately. When you leave the city, when things get hard, when things get bad, when things get dirty and trashy and broken, when you leave and say, I'm done. And by the way, I know I'm not saying anybody who leaves the city is doing that. It's funny how you have to always... But... Maybe you're, that is the reason why you've left. Maybe that is a motivation. It's all about the motivation. If you leave because you don't want to be around broken people being broken, like Jonah, you sit on the sidelines of the issue of the day, that shows you don't get grace corporately. Now, you can do this individually too. It's when you say those people are outside the bounds of possibly being redeemed. 
Look at verse 5 again, right? He wanted to see what would happen to the city. What he's saying is those people are out of bounds. Of course, the irony, here's the, the amazing irony. He doesn't get the grace that was given to him. Oh, so you deserve to be spit out from that, that fish, right? No, that was grace. Oh, so you deserved to have that tree, that plant to cover you and care for you so you didn't, you didn't get burned. No, that's grace. In fact, the whole pursuit, the entire book of Jonah is God pursuing Jonah. It's all a sign of grace. And he couldn't see it. And as I was reading this over and over again, I was like, oh my goodness, where in my life am I not seeing God's grace? Right? There's grace everywhere. The ability to breathe. Hands, feet, friends, love, warmth, kindness, goodness. Pain is a grace. You know why pain's a grace? Because if you didn't have pain, you wouldn't know what's actually hurting you. Do we see those things as grace? Do we live in a world of awe of the grace that is given to us every single day? Because if you quit, you don't see grace. Now, secondly, you don't see grace if you don't think you need it. The second thing that I think Jonah shows us is if you don't get grace, if you don't think you need grace. What do I mean? When he's sitting outside the city... God has this, this interesting com, uh, uh, thing that happens. Uh, a, a plant grows up almost overnight and protects him from the sun and the wind. This is in verse 8. When the sun rose up, God provided a scorching east wind and the sun blazed on Jonah's head. What doesn't come out in the Greek, sorry, um, what doesn't come out in the Hebrew here is the word anger and the word blazed is the same word. And so what, what, the, what God's trying to say here is... Let me show you what's going on in your heart, Jonah. You're so angry on the inside. It's the exact same heat and misery that you're feeling right now on the outside. See, Jonah was burning with anger because he couldn't see his own need for grace. Those who, who, know, those who know that they're not put together at the end of the day are never hot demanding other people to be put together. That's what it comes down to. It. Those who know that they're messed up tend not to demand other people to not be messed up. Period. Those who, who, who get this don't despise other people who don't get this. <laughs> and therefore, a Christian, here's the definition of a Christian. A Christian is not somebody who has it all together. A Christian, the definition of a Christian is somebody who knows that they don't. That they see their need for grace all the time. That they realize that that's the root of their problem, and therefore it's the root of everybody else's problem. And therefore... Christians believe, yeah, other people need grace, but they also know they need it too. So how do we get grace? I would argue that this might be our biggest struggle. Christians, non-Christians, we don't see the need for our grace. How do we get it? Last point, God's caring compassion. Look at verse 10. In the very end, God tells Jonah uh, in verse 10, you have concern about this plant. It sprang up overnight. Verse 11, and should I not have concern for the great city? Also, that doesn't show up in the, in the Hebrew. The word for concern here is the exact same word for compassion that's in verse 2. So which is in, here's what's so ironic. God's like, yo, you, you talk, call, said I'm compassionate. So <laughs> here's me being compassionate. You said I'm compassionate, so now I'm having concern. What's compassion? Compassion means care. And so the logic is this. Jonah, you cared for this plant and it died. Why can't I care for these people who are dying? 
It's good logic. And the, uh, and the way he, he puts it is, should I not actually care for people who don't know their right hand from their left? By the way, this isn't literal. It's not like they were dumb. They, didn't, they never were told like L for left and this one isn't L. So that's not it. What's happening here is he's saying these people, they don't know who they are. They don't know who I am. And therefore, shouldn't I, shouldn't my heart be moved out towards them? Like your heart is moved towards the dying of this plant that, that, that you loved. And so here, by the way, people ask me all the time, I don't know if God really cares for the lost. I don't know if God really cares for people who, who don't know him and don't love him. From now on, please tell, take them to this passage. This verse right here is proof that God cares. But here's the million dollar question. Who's lost? Who is the lost one in this text? When God says to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry? Guess what God's doing in that phrase? God's pursuing Jonah. And he's been doing it the entire book. First after Jonah walks away, then when he's in the the fish. Now out here, this, here's the aha, the surprise, the, the twist of a good story. We thought the whole story was about those bad Ninevites. Turns out the whole story was about Jonah, that God had been trying to get to this moment in Jonah's life to have a conversation with him. And I think this shows immense compassion by God, that the great length that God would do, he would orchestrate this whole, con- this Assyrian population. Giving Jonah even a job to do was actually a way to get to a place where he could actually have a conversation with Jonah about his heart. Is it possible, if it's true, that God would go to this great length to have a conversation with Jonah? Maybe, just maybe, he's having the same conversation with you. He wants to have the same conversation with you. Maybe Your whole life, the fishes that have swallowed you up, maybe your whole life, the the running the other direction away from God. Maybe some of you walked away. Maybe some of you just are just staying distant. I don't want to deal with it. Maybe later on in my life, I'll figure it out. Maybe that this is all in your life a long way for God to say, can I have a talk with you about your heart? Can Can we have a sit down? And the question is, I guess, for all of us, will we listen? That's the kind of God that we see here. And of course, you know, the story is still going on. We're asking ourselves, well, what happens to Jonah? And we're not, you know, notice, we're not told in the text. There's just this cliffhanger. And, you, know, and, you know, should I not have concern? Question mark. And yet, our biggest clue about what happens to Jonah, we actually kind of, we, we can infer what happens It's embedded in the fact that we even have the story in the first place. That the only reason that we know that Jonah was a jerk, (laughs) the only reason why we know that he was willing to run the other direction, you know, pretty shameful thing. (laughs) Jonah, you had one job, be a prophet. (laughs) The only reason you have that story, that we have this story, is because he wasn't so swallowed up with shame that he didn't tell other people about it. That he wasn't so broken and so unable to face his brokenness that he didn't somehow write it down or tell others. 
Because he must have been confident somehow in the compassion and joy of God's love for him. Only somebody who believes that they're wrong but accepted. That they're sinful but loved. Could they really ever tell their story fully? Only somebody who is free because they have experience of God's grace in their life. Could be able to be free enough to speak about the most damning story of their lives. And as I was thinking about that this week, I was like, wait a second. Do I feel that free? Am I free enough to be able to tell everybody and put it out there for everybody to see my stories of my, of my failing? See, I would argue that to the degree that you feel God's grace, to that degree, will you be confident to be able to tell other people about the failings of your life? And I think we all have them, don't we? But yet, this, last, this, still, this verse is still such a cliffhanger because it's amazing. The whole book ends. Duh. The end. Wait, what happens? How would God be able to have compassion on those who don't love him, who don't know him, who don't want to know him? And by the way, who are we talking about now? Are we talking about Jonah and, or the Ninevites? The bad people or the good people? Yes. How will God be able to meet them? Well, go back to this word concern. When you do a deep dive in this word concern, this word compassion, yes, it means to care, but there's a second lexical use. It often means to have compassion and concern unto tears, unto weeping. That when you care so deeply, have you, um, all right, I'm going I'm to out myself. When I was a kid, uh, there have been times when I get in fights and I just start crying. And I can't, I can't help it. It's not because I'm like sad. It's there's such a concern and hurt and moment that the tears just come out. Maybe you felt this for yourself. Because the compassion at some level is when you get down to the deep version of compassion, you feel torn in two. Question, where is the best example of God exhibiting this type of compassion? What's the best version of, what, what's the, what's, where is, does he most act like this? Centuries later, there was another man who was outside the city. But instead of despising it, he, on a donkey, begins weeping for it. We actually studied this during our Palm Sunday sermon. That it says that Jesus, when he was outside the city, he began weeping for the city. He was torn in two for that city. He was grieved for it and wept over it. And again, it wasn't tears of like, oh, boo-hoo. It was tears of anguish. See, Jonah left the city to champion its demise. Jesus, in that moment, he, he was on the long road into that city to champion its salvation. Jonah left the city to sit outside of that brokenness, to say, I'm done, uh-uh. Jesus went into that city to do something about that brokenness. How? What was the, what's, the, what's the main thing? Yes, the cross. Yes, he died for the sins of the world. Yes, but how? We brought it up last week, but it's too good not to bring it up again. In all 89 chapters of the four Gospels, there's only one place where God ever talks about his own heart, where Jesus ever talks about his own heart. It's Matthew chapter 11, verse 29, where it says this. Jesus says, I am gentle and lowly in heart. It's that one place of the entire Bible where Jesus says, the core of who I am is I'm gentle. I've been watching this uh, miniseries, The Chosen, with my daughters. Uh, and they said they're going to do like seven 
seasons, which I think is seven seasons where it could go wrong. Um, it's about the life of Jesus, but the first couple episodes have been really good. And there's this episode about Jesus turning water into wine. And it's actually really done well because Jesus wasn't ready to start his ministry. He wasn't ready to do miracles. And the way they depict it is they focused on Mary, his mother's request. And it was just such earnestness of saying, please help my, my friend who, you know, is going to experience this social shame with the wine running out. And Jesus responds with such gentleness and tenderness. I had never thought about that the God of the universe would listen to his earthly mother and just say, you know what? I'm going to do this because I love you. That the God of the universe would turn in one gentle moment to respond to his mother's request. And that matters because this. Elijah needed hot cakes and water last week. And a gentle whisper speaking to him. Jonah knew God was compassionate. He just didn't know how compassionate he really was. He had to experience that compassion. Right? And I think you and I, we have to as well. That your God is bigger than you think. Your God's more loving than you think. He's more compassionate than you think. I promise you, nobody's going to get to heaven one day and say, you know what, God? You really should have been more compassionate and more loving. So we need to step back and see, wait a second. If the God of creation is gentle... And it's most exhibited, his concern and compassion of care is most exhibited in the person of Jesus. Then the question is, is, as he's dying for us to live, where might be the plants of your life that are growing over you right now that you are not acknowledging? Where is the grace that God has given you that you won't look at and see that as grace? Where is God maybe enveloping you and kindly caring for you to bring you to a place where you can see him better? That you might be refusing to acknowledge it right now in your life. Where you've put on the, like, the blinders and I, you know, hear no evil, see no evil, speak no evil. Because God, you, you know, you, I hear this all the time. God's not speaking to me. I don't hear him. But, he has, but there are growing plants in your life. There are swallowing fish in your life. There are all the like around you begging you to talk to him. Begging you to see him. And will we hear it? And what, was, what is he saying? Jesus says it best. He says, come all ye who are weary and heavy laden, for I will give you rest, for I am gentle and lowly. Come. Come. You know, the, the, the claim to come to him means you're going somewhere. The, there's only one way that's going to be gentle. And it says, why? To what? To give you rest. I've lived in this town long enough. Your weariness is not just because you overwork. It's not just physical. We, yes, it is to some degree. And that's why last week we said, God wants to meet you physically, but it's mental and spiritual and emotional because your weariness is because you're, you're overcommitted yourself to be successes in your life, out in the world, in business, mother, father, lover, and it won't work. But if you have rest in him, it says, come all you who are weary and find rest. Who? In him. If you're not a Christian here today, that rest is available to you. But if you are a Christian You've forgotten, like Jonah. It's not so much what you do, it's what has been done for you, and you rest in that sweet, gentle embrace. Only a touch of this gentleness, this sweet whisper, will change you, and only that will allow you to be energized to have a life out in this world, to love and serve other people, as as our diaconate exhibited. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we need this, gentleness. We live in a world of 
the loudest voice wins, shouting each other down. Father, teach us to embody your character. I don't think we're ever been told to be gentle and lowly. That's not how you get ahead in this town. But Father, I pray for a touch of tenderness, a word of grace from you. Whisper. The reason why sometimes you don't show up in an earthquake or a fire or wind is because we need the gentleness to deal with the hurts and the cares and the needs that we have. I, find, I pray, Father, that we would get this. Help us look for it. See, the question is, people are going, well, where do I see it? It's all around us if, we, if we're just be willing to look. I pray that we would do this in your name. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to our church podcast. We pray that it can serve as a resource for you as you continue processing aspects of Christianity and growing in your faith. We hope you'll subscribe to our channel if you haven't already, and we invite you to check out our website to learn more about our church and how to get connected to our family. Just visit lincolnsquare.redeemer.com.